Good morning. Do you ever get frustrated when things don't work the way they're supposed to work? I think that one of the things that deeply, deeply disturbs us in our lives is the reality that things just don't go the way we planned. And no matter what you do, um, no matter what time you set your alarm, sometimes you're late. Sometimes the kids don't get ready. Sometimes the dog throws up in the middle of the floor. Sometimes the car won't start. And you just can't get where you're going where you want to be at the time you want to be there. Uh, maybe it's uh, plans of uh, your life and uh, you look back in, in this morning and you think about even the plans that you have for, for career and family and you're deeply hurt over the fact that it just didn't go the way you expected it to, the way you desired it to, the way you planned, the way you worked, the way you prayed. What do we do when life doesn't go the way we want it to? Where do we go for hope in the midst of a world that seemingly, and not only seemingly, but as our passage is going to show us, actually is frustrating us? That it, it, in many ways, works against us. Do you ever get angry that no matter what you do, time will always get the best of you? Always. At some point, you're going to get tired and can't do it anymore. So where do we go? Where do we go to find hope? Fortunately for me, I can look at my laptop and we'll see if this works. Um... But it isn't ideal, so bear with me if I get uh, caught up in trying to keep my, keep my notes in front of me. Um, one of the things I think we uh, give to answer the question that I put before you is the idea of heaven and the hope that heaven brings. Uh, and Huck Finn was actually being encouraged in, uh, by his teacher about the rewards he will have in heaven for good behavior. And this is what Huckleberry Finn says. She went on and told me all about the good place. She said all a body would have to do there was go around all day long with a harp and sing. Forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it. <laughs> See, maybe, um, maybe part of the reason we struggle with hope is uh, because maybe we're like uh, Huck Finn and, or we're like Mark Twain who wrote it, right? Who... Um, is, is it maybe at best jaded towards Christianity? He's obviously got some issues with the Christian message. But maybe our indifference and our, our lack of understanding is because we have misread what heaven is really about. Maybe we've misstated what our hope is. Maybe we've miscommunicated uh, what it means to be rede a redeemed people and where we find hope from the frustration. I remember sitting as a child in church and thinking about heaven and thinking, oh, that sounds miserable. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, what's your picture of heaven? What, what's the world's picture of the church's view of heaven? The world pictures our view of heaven as this uh, ethereal existence where we float around on cl clouds, play harps, and sing all day. That, to me, sounds miserable. And it should to you also. And the impiety of Mark Twain is actually because he's reacting to an impious view of heaven. 
He's actually reacting to a view of heaven that's not biblical at all. And if that's your view of heaven, if that's your view of the Christian hope, I pray that your mind is changed this morning. So stand and look with me in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Please hear the reading of God's word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is, reve- that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. You may be seated. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have redeemed a people, that you have uh, entered this world, that you have entered a world of frustration and groaning, that you have entered a world of pain and sorrow, that you have entered a world where uh, hurt and confusion reigns. We thank you, God, that you have entered this world in, in the mystery of the incarnation and that you have suffered all the insults and blows that this world can throw. Lord, we thank you that you have taken our place in the judgment for sin, and you have been raised from the dead. We thank you that our hope is not in some ethereal existence, but it's in and found through what we see in the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that we have this, and we see this by your Spirit, the Spirit that raised him from the dead, and we pray and know and look expectantly that that Spirit will be here this morning raising these very words of this very sermon and raising hearts even now. And we ask for it. All for the good of your people, all for the sake of your great name, all for the uh, glorious um, display of your kingdom here on earth, even in the midst of frustration. Amen. All right, so we're looking at a, a, picture, a, a, a text that deals very specifically with the resurrection. Last week we looked at the resurrection of Christ. This week I want us to look, as I've said, what the resurrection means, what we're looking for beyond the resurrection. How does it influence our lives? Does it make any sense? Does it actually speak to the frustration that I've laid before us? Is there more to be said about what's going on in the resurrection than that Jesus was raised from the dead? And there absolutely is. 
The, the resurrection of Christ is certainly central and important. And the first thing I want to say about that, for those of you who may be, um, uh, may be unsure about the resurrection of Christ, maybe you're investigating Christianity, you don't know if it's something that you would really be interested in, maybe you don't understand it, maybe you've heard all different versions of it, then one of the things that I want you to know this morning is that there is no Christianity, there is no what we call the church apart from the resurrection of Christ. And what we mean by that is that a man, the man, the God who became man, actually died. And three days later, he got up and walked away. We don't mean some spiritual form of resurrection. We don't mean some agnostic idea. We mean that Jesus literally walked again in his body, that he got up. And that there is no Christianity without that. But Paul extends that even further in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, look, if, if Jesus hasn't been raised bodily, then there is no hope of our bodily resurrection. And he says, if that hasn't happened, if Jesus hasn't been raised, we're to be pitied most of everyone. There is no Christianity apart from the resurrection of Christ, despite what very learned theologians may say about what the resurrection means. Jesus has to have gotten up out of that grave. Or we are to be pitied of most people, and you should all go fishing this afternoon. And don't come back. There's just no reason for us to meet here if Jesus did not get up. This is actually one of the reasons that we are to believe that the tomb is empty. Uh, that uh, I think if, if we're going to lay out some evidences for you to consider about Jesus' resurrection and whether or not he did get up, is, is you must consider that nowhere before this time uh, can you find the notion of resurrection as the Christian church unanimously taught it. From the very beginning, the, the church, the church, the Christians, the followers of Jesus unanimously rallied around this idea that there was a resurrection of Christ and that that meant the resurrection of, of all of his followers and ultimately all of the creation. And you can't find that anywhere in Greek thought. Actually, Greek thought uh, would, have, would have said that the hope would be escape from the body. And the Christian says, no, that the hope comes in the resurrection of the body. Uh, there is some Jewish, uh, Ju some streams of, of Judaism that lead into the idea of resurrection. We know that there are some streams of Judaism that believed in the resurrection. But they had no concept of a crucified and resurrected Messiah. Their understanding was that Messiah would come. He would put, his, he would put down the enemies of the people of God and raise up the Jewish people. And establish them in this, uh, this location in the Middle East and give them back their land and get rid of their enemies. They had no concept of the idea that their Messiah would come and die and be raised bodily. So just historically, the reality that the church unanimously agreed that this is what had happened. And, and that that's what it meant, I think indicates that something happened in the first century. That they actually met Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And in the upper room and in, along the Sea of Galilee after he was raised. You have to consider the resurrection. 
Secondly, what I want us to see about this is, uh, in, from our text then, is that this time between the resurrection of Christ and what, we are, what our hope is and where our ultimate hope is, is marked by suffering. That the Bible actually assumes that the backdrop of the Christian experience is suffering. Paul says it, for I consider that sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. He assumes that we will suffer. He talks about it as if that's, that's just what's to be expected. And he describes that suffering in the language of groaning. And that groaning, that word there is a very interesting word. It's a word that would have been used um, of a woman in childbirth. We see that even in, in the sense that the creation is groaning uh, in child, together in the pains of childbirth until now. And you have to think about that in, in the, the first century. The, a woman groaning in the, in the pains of childbirth. Um, is I, I don't know if you want to bring that image to mind right now. <laughs> it's a hard image to bring to mind. But you have to also consider that that groaning, that, that the, the groaning and the pain of childbirth is a near-death experience. And at this time, it was actually a very likely a death, a, a, an experience of death. Many, many, many women died in childbearing in this time because of the pain and, and the 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 toil that it took on their body. And the groaning that Paul says that, the, that we are experiencing, that the creation is experiencing, is like that. The word would also be used of groaning on the battlefield. This groaning as, uh, I don't know, I think of um, movies where you see the, the after effects of the battle, and there's, especially if you think about civil war and hand-to-hand combat and the the, the men lay down in the field and, and the groaning that goes on is they know that their lifeblood is slipping away and their only hope is that somebody comes to them to save them. That the groaning that Paul says in the context of suffering is that kind of groaning. It's a, it's a groaning of uh, mortal conflict. It's the groaning of the Israelites in bondage to slavery, desiring to be set free. And what we see about that is that the creation is actually caught up in that groaning. That, that not only is humanity caught up in that groaning, but Paul says there that the creation itself is groaning. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Verse 22. And we have to ask ourselves, what does he mean by the creation? And I think just by process of deduction, as you look through the passage, the only thing that he could mean is the, as one commentator says it, the non-rational created world. Everything but humans. He's talking about uh, the mountains and the seas, and he's talking about your dog. He's talking about all of that stuff. He's talking about all of the stuff out there that we call the creation. We call the world around us. Maybe we call it um, uh, the environment. Whatever you want to call it. I'm not trying to make some political statement there. I'm just saying, whatever we des- however we describe the, the material created order other than humanity, Paul is saying that is, it is experiencing that kind of gro- groaning. It is actually caught up in this reality. The reality of futility of verse 20 describes what that, that um, groaning consists of. It consists of futility. As we've talked about this morning, it means that the creation has not fulfilled the purpose for which it, is, it was made. It's in bondage. It's enslaved to decay 
verse 21. That, that there's this futility, there's this, have you ever, I mean, I've said it before, but you, you um, if, you're, if you're a person like me who is not um, the most organized, I, one of the things I've found is no matter what I try, no matter what, I mean, I have an iPhone, and, and it's the coolest thing that I think that could have ever been invented in terms of helping me stay organized. But I still show up late, and I still forget things. That there's, there's this futility that's woven into the fabric of creation, and it experiences it along with our experience of that futility. That the bondage to decay means that, I think Paul has in mind here, and several commentators brought out this point, is that the bondage to decay that the creation experiences harkens all the way back to Genesis 3 and the fall of Adam and his sin and Adam and Eve and all of his posterity with him. And God not only brings the covenant curse down on them, but he says then, and also the creation is going to experience the futility along with you. That there will now be thorns and thistles that grow and work against your plants. No matter what you do to care for those things, they, they will um, be worked against in this life. That's what Paul is saying is experienced. That's what he's saying is the backdrop and the normal backdrop of our experience as Christians. That may sound, again, like a downer and not very hopeful. But what I want you to see, again, as Jeff has already said, that if we miss this, then we miss the hope. If we actually uh, deny this, if we, if we look around, the world uh, wants to deny this, right? The world wants to deny that there's suffering in a lot of ways. It wants to deny that there's an inevitability to, to decay. It wants to um, fight and struggle and try to act as if it's not going to happen. We go from uh, workout routine to workout routine to all kinds of different plastic surgeries that have been brought onto the scene to try to convince people that decay will not eventually overcome them. And yet, that is the reality of the time that we live. And what we need to see then is that first, I guess, that this bondage to decay, this futility, is a futility that is brought to the creation not because the creation sinned, but because the creation has a very close connection with humanity, with humans, with us. We were told that it is subjected to futility in verse 20, not willingly, not because of something the creation did on its own. The creation didn't sin. The creation didn't rebel against God. The futility has come because of him who subjected it. And again, going back to the creation, that the creation is brought into this, uh, or back to Genesis 3, that the creation is brought into futility because of what happened with Adam and Eve. And so what you've got to begin to think about in terms of the creation and ter- and is that God had created Adam and Eve to be this ruler and vice region over the creation. And there was this flow of blessing and that blessing flowed through the image bearer of God. That God blessed Adam and was in relationship and fellowship with him. And Adam then extended that blessing to the creation. And he was given charge and vice regency over all that existed. And he was supposed to bring that blessing to bear on all of creation. And the same thing that 
that happened in reverse is when Adam and Eve sinned, God brings down the proper judgment on them for their rebellion. And that frustration is worked outward because now the vice regent is broken. Now the vice regent is frustrated. Now the vice regent is, 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 is a sinner. And so now the things that he puts his hand to are frustrated and the thing that he was given care for uh, are brought into that frustration. So it's not that the creation fell in the sense that Adam and Eve fell, but it, they fell in the sense that the one who was to care for them, the one that was made to care for them, fell. And so it works in reverse. And I think this is where we begin to see our hope. That the resurrection then is also about both. The resurrection is about, uh, it's, it's a reversing of that flow. Or it, it actually works in the same way. That the resurrection that is applied to Adam and his descendants then begins to uh, catch up in it the thing that Adam was made to care for. That all of creation, the Bible teaches, is caught up in the reality of the resurrection. We must understand that our hope is not some ethereal existence floating on clouds, but our hope is grounded in the very creation of the very world you were made to know and interact with without frustration. That the futility that you feel is, is it makes sense. It's because the world is frustrated along with us until it is restored. And we're told here, look, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage. And how? Or what's that bondage and freedom? It's the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That the creation experiences the same reality, the, the being brought back into a restored um, peace and shalom and, and futility is put away because of what happens to the children of God, what happens in Christ in his resurrection. The other thing that we see about this is that um, the, what's happening with the creation is a mirror for what's supposed to also happen in our bodies. That, um, that the, the bodily material resurrection of Christ leads to the bodily material resurrection of those who are united to him by faith, and it leads to the resurrection of all of creation. And that our hope... I, 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 this... This didn't make sense to me for a long time, but the more I understand this... And, and especially the older I get, the more I have to have, I'll say it this way, the more the Bible's teaching about bodily resurrection gives me hope. I started um, P90X this week. And um, it's a modified version of P90X. Uh, Scott Cunningham's going to hold me to a, a, a more... Um, a strict version of P90X when we start working out together. But, um, I, you know, I turned, I, I turned 40 last year, and, and I feel it. I feel it when I start P90X this week. I wa I'm walking differently because of what I did on Monday. <laughs> Not because of what I did yesterday, but because of what I did on Monday. 
Um, I, I think I've told y'all this story, but there was this, there was this point uh, where I uh, was playing flag football a couple years ago, and I twisted both ankles uh, on two separate days. Actually, I twisted an ankle in the flag football game on Saturday, decided it was a good idea to go play soccer on Sunday with a bunch of friends, and twisted the other one on the very first play in soccer. And, um, and Steve Martin uh, was bringing a group of guys out to go climbing at this place near me in New Mexico, and I have two twisted ankles. And I, I think it was my first bout with midlife crisis. I, I think, I, I can't remember, Heather, you have to remind me of the conversation, but I came out, I moped that whole time. I was out there in this place that I, I had climbed for years. We'd go out for, for a week at a time. It's a, it's a beautiful place out in the, the desert of West Texas. Um, and I am struggling to just get around. And I hated it. I was miserable and frustrated. And I remember asking Steve, I said, Steve, what what will climbing look like in heaven? What will the delight that I got when I was younger out of doing that look like when my body is restored? See, I need to know that. And I need to know that the delight that I had in those moments where I, I loved what was going on, where I engaged. You know those moments, I don't know if you've ever played sports. I'm sure musicians have a similar experience, but I wouldn't know. But that, those moments in sports where everything comes together and everything's in slow motion and you make a play and you look back on it and you go, I don't know how that happened. And you play it over in your mind and you think, wow, that was cool. You've got to know that that reality is part of what Jesus came to restore to you. That, that, that your body was not meant to, to make decay. Some people would say that, it, that, it's, that it's human to die. That it's just part of, of the natural course of things. That is a lie. It is not a part of the natural course of things to die. You were not made to know death. Your body was not meant to know the futility that you struggle under day after day. And what we're told is that in the resurrection of Christ, by the way, this whole passage is set up in terms of the resurrection earlier in uh, chapter 8. That we're, t- we're told that it's the spirit of life that gives life to Jesus. And then we're, we're brought into the spirit of life ourselves. And we're told that we're now caught up in the resurrection. And it includes your body. Our bodies um, and its resurrection are also the hope of the resurrection of creation. Look there in, I think it's verse 19. The creation waits with eager longing. The, the image there is uh, the child that's been brought into, I don't know, for my son, it would maybe be GameStop. And the counter's just too high for him to see all the coolest games that are put back behind the counter. And he's craning his neck over the edge of that counter to see what delight there is back there for him. The creation eagerly cranes its neck. It stands on tiptoe looking for this reality to come. That's the image that Paul wants us to see about the creation. And that, that longing that they have comes again with the revealing of the sons of God. 
And what that's talking about is, is our resurrection. It's talking about that, that final resurrection where our bodies are, are, are brought up from the grave and death sting is removed. The whole creation longs for this reality. It groans with this anticipation. It groans waiting for our resurrection. You know, there's this interesting passage in Revelation chapter 6 that I think I'm right about. I've, I, no other commentator says this, which may mean I'm on a thin, li- a thin limb. All right, not any that I've found. But there's, there's this passage in, Romans, uh, in Revelation chapter 6 where John sees under the altar of God the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God. So these are martyrs who are witnesses uh, to the, the gospel. And here's what they're crying out. How long, O oh Lord? And I think, wait a minute. Everything that I've been told all my life about, or everything I've thought all my life about the r- resurrection and being around the throne room of God is that you got it. You've got everything you want. That, that you've, you've passed over into complete bliss and joy. What would they be crying out waiting for? They're waiting for this. They're waiting for the day when Jesus comes back and restores their bodies to them. How long? And that's what they ask. How long will you endure? How long till you come back and judge and put down unrighteousness? How long till you make the world right? How long, O oh Lord? Even at the throne of God right now, even though the saints are in one sense enthralled with God, they are waiting for something else. They are waiting for the resurrection the new heavens and the new earth. It's not enough to be present with the Lord and absent from your body. That's not the full joy of heaven. So how do we find hope in the midst of this? I, I, there's several things in this passage we could point out, but I want you to look at verse 23. Paul says, not only the creation, okay, but we ourselves. And we ourselves, we groan. But we groan and we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now the first fruits are a very um, important aspect of the sacrificial system. The, actually the covenant relationship of God. We, we see it in Leviticus chapter 23. The first fruit would have been the first pickings of the harvest that the Israelites would have brought into uh, uh, to the, the, the temple and given to God as a sacrifice, as a, as a picture of their faith and knowledge that God is the one that's given this to them. And it's a, a picture of their faith that just as he's given us these, we can give these up because he's in control of the rest of the harvest. But what's interesting about this and everywhere else in the scriptures, the first fruits are the things that the people give to God. But in this, the first fruit is what God has given to you. Do you see that? It's the first fruit of the Spirit that has been given to you. That this is the picture that God is actually, there's this great harvest that's been secured on your behalf. There's this great harvest that's about to come. There's this blessing and and hope and joy of everlasting, the new heavens and new earth, the everlasting life, all that you hope and dream for. And that's been secured and you have now been given the first fruit of it in the Spirit of God who dwells among us and dwells with you individually. 
That the Spirit is the gift of God to, to show us that, that the hope between what's already true because of Christ is coming surely because uh, the deposit's been given. That we hope because we have the Spirit. By the way, uh, Paul uses the, the image of first fruit um, also for Christ. So the picture of the first fruit of the Spirit is the seal and pledge to you. The first fruit of Christ is the seal and pledge from us in a sense, to God. Because, because what we see in Christ, and when he talks about Christ as the first fruit in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as one place, is that Christ is the second Adam. Christ is the man, Adam, who failed in the garden, who brought all of this frustration about. Now the second Adam has done what the first Adam did not do, has actually accomplished righteousness, has accomplished salvation, and his secure work is now uh, taken as the first fruit of what uh, our hope is. His resurrection is our resurrection. That everything about Jesus and that he's accomplished, if you are united to him by the first fruit of the Spirit, is true of you. And you have it and you cannot lose it and it's secure. That's the point of the first fruit. Is that God has made this way and that it's secure in these two realities. The Spirit of God who applies that work and Jesus who accomplishes it, if you will. And caught up in that is your greatest hope. That your body will be redeemed, that your job matters, that the hard labors of parenting really are important, that caring for, I don't know, your sick neighbor who you just care for them because they're sick matters. See, because we know and believe that God is not simply redeeming redeeming us as individual souls that are going to float ethereally for all eternity on clouds, but that God has actually sealed our humanity in the true human, Jesus. Say it this way. The resurrection is deeply human. And because of that, and because the creation is caught up in that, then we actually have hope in the first fruit of the Spirit, and we have reason to care for our world. I thought about how to how to maybe apply how to how to explain the application of what it means that the resurrection catches up all of creation. Um, One of the one of the things I think of is. When we lived in New Mexico, it was a very agrarian uh, culture. Um, Hatch green chilies, right? Um, The whole world revolves around the harvest. And I remember um, going to the Wine and Harvest Festival in the spring and in the, the fall in New Mexico, southern New Mexico. And being out there and being with this community of people who were all coming together to celebrate this blessing of the land, this gift of God, this, this reality, and, and to, to sing and eat and drink together. And I, I couldn't help but think, God, I think this is something like the new heavens and the new earth. 
This is something like the reality that we are, we are caught up in. This is something that speaks of the deep longing of the human soul that the resurrection actually brings about. Community and fellowship, uh, joy and delight, living on the bounty and the blessings of the land, giving thanks as a community, in fellowship with each other, in, um, in, in, in some sense, non-futility, celebrating the, the actual fruit of the harvest instead of the futility of it. By the way, I, I think a local example of that is men's ministry on tap. You may not, but you may be like, come on, really? I can't tell you how important it is to me to, to go once a month and sit with a group of guys and have fellowship, to get to know each other, to have camaraderie, to, um, to, 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 give, to give voice to the fact that we have a shared life together and that life isn't some esoteric existence. It, it looks like us bumping up against each other, talking about our families or talking about the game. It looks like us having a meal and drink together. It looks like us enjoying the blessing and the benefit of the fellowship of the Spirit of God. And that's very simple. It looks like uh, seeing the person on, on the street and seeing them deeply as deeply human and understanding that they're image bearers of God and moving toward them, not because you have to, but because you understand that God cares about justice in this world. And someday, justice will reign. And we as those who have been caught up in the redemption of Christ are ones who actually can extend it a little bit in this life. We have the Spirit dwelling in us. We have been caught up in the redemption. And so we know what justice looks like in our city. And we should care about it. It looks like offering help to somebody who's sick. Because... We really do care about people's bodies. We care about their souls. We care about seeing them come to faith in Jesus. Those two things can't be separated. They can't be separated. You can't say we only do this, and you can't say we only do that. The reality is that the resurrection pushes us towards both. It pushes us towards a view of the new heavens and the new earth that works itself out in our communities, in our lives, in our families. I had a conversation with a student this week, and his question to me was, <laughs> I'll paraphrase it, is it normal to hate the things you love? And what he was saying is, there's this, there's this gift I have, there's this ability I have, but right now I hate it. It's frustrating to me. No matter how much I practice, I'm frustrated. And what I, what I want us to understand is Paul says, yes, that's normal to hate the thing you love. But the deposit, the first fruit of the Spirit, gives us hope beyond that. That the first fruit is connected to the resurrection. And I would say, and I think I said it, I don't know if I did, but that thing you're practicing, that gift you have, that love and delight you have in that instrument that you play, will carry on for all eternity. And it matters. The things you do in this body matter. 
the deepest longings of your soul have been secured in Christ, his resurrection, and you can taste them in the midst of the groaning and suffering of this life. It means the um, entropy of, of relationships, the fact that our relationships tend to break. Actually, because the Spirit dwells with us, this resurrection first fruit has been given to us that we actually can see restored relationships, uh, the fabric mended, not completely, not totally, not, not in, in the way it will be at the second coming, but in real ways because the Spirit is with us. The Spirit is with you. You can actually forgive that person that you don't want to forgive because the Spirit dwells with you, has been given to us. It means there is hope in the midst of brokenness, it means there is a purpose and a power for us to work against the suffering and injustice around us. It means there's fellowship. And it means that you, housewife, you banker, you professor, you um, gardener, you plumber, you coach, you whatever you do, your vocation, you student, it matters. It matters. And Christ will come again to restore your body, your hope, and all of creation. Amen.